September, 30, September 1939, Germany invaded Poland, and this set off a, a domino effect of treaties and, and such that uh, you know, came to be known as World War II. And in that time, yeah, they started to try and decide, how are we going to take back Europe? And so in 1943, the decision was made, okay, we're going to go across the channel. And so they started planning for that. And in uh, June of 1944, they finally invade. And so, you know, this is a, a five-year-long process before they finally invade Europe to take back Europe from Germany. It takes them a, a year of, of planning and deciding what they're going to do. They have to move the date from... June 5th to the 6th, and all sorts of planning goes into it. Well, the last time I left you in Joshua, it was in Joshua chapter 4, and Israel has just begun their invasion of the Promised Land. And God leads them through the Jordan River, and they reach the banks of the Promised Land, and now they're here, and now the battle, now the, the conquering of the promised land is going to begin to take place. Israel hasn't planned for anything. I mean, they've been wandering for 40 years. They have no plan for an invasion. They don't even really have, like, good equipment for an invasion. They've got basic arms and, and stuff, but it seems almost kind of like a, a haphazard plan that they're following through with. They show up at a river that they can't cross on their own. God has to part the river for them, leads them over to the other side of the river. And now we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 5. And honestly, Joshua chapter 5 is one of those ones that we, we run across, we read it, and there's a ton of seemingly confusing and odd things that take place. I mean, we have them landing on the, the river, and then they take place in a sacrament, circumcision, which doesn't seem super wise right before a battle. And then some mysterious figure shows up and starts to have this discussion with Joshua, who is this guy at the end of the chapter. And so we read through it, and we go, this is, a, a, you know, a neat story, and it's amazing to see, you know, this providence of God and his sovereignty over them, because we, we know how this is going to turn out. We've read the book of Joshua, or if you haven't, I mean, you know Israel wins in the end. And so we go, this is nice, and this is interesting, and we see how God worked in their lives. But I think that God is doing something more in these events. And I think the purpose that he had for Israel in these events is actually the same purpose that he has for us today. It hasn't changed. He didn't have one purpose and one application for Israel and then a totally different application for the church. God's lesson is consistent both to Israel and to us, through this passage. So what is it? What is God's point? I think that what God is trying to do here is he's trying to show Israel 
that this is what I'm going to demand from a believer. This is what is going to look like if you want to say that you're a believer, if you want to say that you're an Israelite, you're a child of God, this is what that is going to look like. Here are my expectations for you. Likewise, same for us. As we read this and as we go through, we should be looking at what are the marks of a true believer? Because I think that's what the Lord lays out for Israel and teaches them, if you want to be a true Israelite, if you want to be a true child of God, this child of Yahweh, here is what that looks like. So join with me, and I'll read the first seven verses of chapter 5. And in these first seven verses, I think... God is going to show Israel that belief in Yahweh and good works alone are not the marks of a true believer. Let me repeat that because you may misunderstand it. So belief in God, belief in Yahweh, and good works alone are not the marks of a true believer or a true follower of Yahweh. So follow along with me as we look at this. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibbeth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, Yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war, who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh. Yahweh swore to them that he would not let them see the land that Yahweh had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So, it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So, belief in God, even I would go as far to say, a fear of God is not the mark of a true believer. Follow along with me. We've already been through the story of Rahab. We know Rahab's story. The spies showed up at her house. She knew about Yahweh. She had heard about Yahweh. She had heard the stories, which then influences her response to the spies. Now compare Rahab and her response 
in turning to Yahweh and putting her faith and her trust in Yahweh to the kings of the Amorites, the kings of the Canaanites, and the people that they ruled over. Look what it says at the beginning. As soon as the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel. They didn't think that this was some nebulous threat. This wasn't, who are these people that came out of the desert? The people in the promised land knew exactly who had come across the Jordan. This is Israel, who worships this God, Yahweh, who destroyed Pharaoh's army, who fought battles while in the wilderness and won, and 40 years later, here they are now on our doorsteps threatening to conquer our land. Do you think that the kings and the people believed in Yahweh? Yes. They believed in Yahweh, and their belief in him caused their hearts to melt, it said. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And understand, they're not scared of the people of Israel. The people of Israel are a ragtag bunch, disorganized. They've got their animals and children, and, and that's not how you go to battle people. They don't even have a homeland or a home city that they could retreat to. The people are not afraid of Israel. They're afraid of what Israel represents. That Israel represents that Yahweh and his people are coming to conquer them. And they recognize the power of Yahweh. They recognize what he did to Jericho or what he's going to do to their city. And he rec they recognize what he did to Egypt. And so they're afraid. They're terrified. Their hearts melt. They lose their spirit. Yet, they're not children of God. And they don't find salvation. In contrast to our lone prostitute Rahab over here, why should she be saved? Yet she believes, she fears Yahweh, and she follows after Yahweh. She puts her faith and trust in Yahweh, which is a distinct break between the kings and the people. They fear Yahweh, they believe in Yahweh, but they continue to refuse to follow after him, to worship him, or to put their faith in him. And so then God tells Joshua, here's what I want you to do. I want you to circumcise the children that came out of Egypt that were never circumcised. As we wandered through the wilderness, they didn't continue this sacrament. So the only people at this point that had been circumcised were those that came out of Egypt that were of war age, that were of an age where they would be circumcised. That group of people fit the image of an Israelite. They came out of Egypt. 
They followed after God through the wilderness. They had been circumcised. Outwardly, everything looks wonderful. And then you have their children, this ragtag bunch of kids, that they're not even true Israel. They haven't even been circumcised. They don't even have the sign of the covenant. They're not even under the covenant at this point. At least that's the mindset of an Israelite. But who does God bring into the promised land? He doesn't bring those that were externally fitting this picture, those that had done the work of circumcision. Rather, he brings those that had not even fulfilled his instruction and his command to be circumcised. That is who he brings into the promised land. You see, good works along with a belief in Yahweh are not identifying features of the people of God. Look at what he says again near the end of this first passage. In verse 6, for the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war, who came out of Egypt perished. And why did they perish? Because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh. So here's this group of Israelites that are brought out of Egypt. They're circumcised. Everything externally is good. They're following after Yahweh. They believe in Yahweh. They've seen manifestations of Yahweh. But God says that they did not obey. He says that they did did not listen to the voice of Yahweh. And we know that event is when they first reach the promised land and they send the spies in and only Caleb and Joshua come back and say, we can do this. This is not a problem. The rest of the spies say, it's too dangerous. There's no way. The people are too big. It's not a chance. And the people agree with those spies. And by that agreement, by that decision, they prove that even though they're following after Yahweh, they believe in Yahweh, they've done the good works that he's asked, their faith is not in God. Their faith was not in Yahweh. When they reached that promised land, despite everything that took place before, their faith was still in what they could accomplish themselves, what they could accomplish with their own weapons, with their own might. In Romans 2.29, Paul says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And this is not Paul reinterpreting the idea of circumcision. He's drawing from Deuteronomy 10.16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. You see, God wasn't concerned if Israel had checked off all the external good works, belief, whatever, 
That wasn't his intention. His intention was, has your heart been transformed? You see, because just believing that there's a God, understanding that there's a God, even superficially following after that God is not going to bring you salvation. Likewise, good works is not going to bring you salvation. Paul says it this way. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 1 through 5, Paul says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You see, looking at Israel as they get near the Jordan, as they're five years out from reaching the Jordan, from crossing over into the promised land, there's still a few left. And you're looking out, and you think, man, this is the group that's been following after Yahweh for the past 35 years. Got five more years of wandering. It would be immensely difficult at that point, looking at this large group, who are true Israel and who is not true Israel. And when God looks at them, he has no problem distinguishing who is a child of his and who isn't. And God is not looking at where they eat, were they a part of the Exodus, were they baptized in the same spirit. He's not looking at that. He's looking at how has their heart been transformed. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. You see, Paul says, God did this so that you would understand what he desires in your life. So that you wouldn't pursue evil thinking that you're saved because I've showed up at church every week of my life faithfully. I teach a Sunday school class. I preach sermons. I sing in the choir. I've been baptized. I walked the aisle when I was five and a half years old or ten years old or whenever you did it. If your heart has not been transformed, God doesn't care how many times you showed up for church. God doesn't show how many Bible lessons you taught. He doesn't care how good your behavior was. If your heart is still corrupt and not trusting in him and finding your faith in him. We can fall into that same deception that we think we're being pleasing to God because we've done 
all the external things that he's asked. And we've put on the good front and the good image while within our hearts we hold on to our selfishness and our greed and our rebelliousness against God. So belief in good works are not marks of a true believer. Second point, Joshua 5, 8 through 12, belief and good works are marks of a true believer. And I haven't lost my mind. I understand they're conflicting points. Belief and good works are not marks of a true believer. Belief and good works are marks of a true believer. Follow along with me back in Joshua 5. Verse 8 says, When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evenings on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after the ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. <clears throat> the difference between those that were allowed to enter into the promised land versus those that didn't was their faith. You see, true believers trust in a providential God. True believers trust in a sovereign God, in a God that has made promises to them and that they believe he will keep those promises, that he is not going to violate the word that he gave to his children. Unlike the older generation, this generation that enters into the land has a faith in God. And here, God lays out for them these three critical events, these three critical things. We see the circumcision, then they celebrate the Passover, and then talks about the manna ceasing. The circumcision was instituted back in Genesis 17, and was a reminder to Israel about the covenantal promises that God made to them. I know, it seems like a weird thing, and you can work through the theological point of it and whatever else you want, but just understand that this stood as a sign to Israel of the covenant that he had made to Abram. The covenant was, Abram, I am going to turn you into a great nation. I'm going to give you so many offspring that they'll outnumber the stars that you can see in the sky. I'm going to give you land. I have this promised land. Look out. You see this land? This land is going to be yours. I will give it to you. And then third, I am going to bless your offspring. And through them, the rest of the world will find blessing also. And so this here, he brings them into the promised land. 
Just imagine for 40 years you've been wandering, reading about the promises of God, reading about the covenantal promises he made to Abram, repeated to Moses. And now here you are, your feet are in the land that he promised. And you take place in this sacrament, not because the work makes you pure, not because the work makes you right, but rather as a reminder to them, think about the promises I made to you. Think about how I've kept those promises. That's why he moves on to then the Passover. Remember before Passover, where were you? That's right, you were enslaved in Egypt with no way out. And why did I come? Because you cried out to me. You cried out for mercy. You cried out for salvation. And I brought you salvation through the Passover. Never ever forget what I did to save you from your, your enslavement in Egypt. And then the manna, the manna ceases. Yet the manna ceasing doesn't mean that they're going to go hungry because now they're in the promised land, which is flowing with milk and honey. And they no longer need the manna. But the cessation of that manna, the manna stopping, is a reminder to them, hey, we've spent 40 years and not one of us has had to make a trip to a grocery store. God has brought food to our feet every day for 40 years. Not only did he make promises to us, but he's fulfilled those promises by providing us salvation and turning us into this nation and by providing us sustenance even when we've rebelled, even when we didn't have faith in him, even in our rejection, he's kept his promises and he's fed all of us. He didn't just feed those that were faithful. He fed the whole lot of them until the old generation passed away. And now here's this new generation going in to the promised land. And God lays this out. Remember the promises I've made to you. Remember the salvation I've brought to you. Remember the sustenance and care and just that daily providence that I've had within your life. You see, the God that we place our faith in is not an empty God. He's not a God that makes promises and then never follows through, that makes promises and then disappears and who knows what will happen. But rather, he's a God that's intimately involved in all of his children's lives. He's a God that has rule and control over our lives. He's a God that not only created this universe, but has ultimate control over this universe. And so we don't place our faith in something that's untrustworthy or empty or hollow, but rather this providential God known as Yahweh at this time. Israel had no logical reason to follow these instructions of God. I like to think that I would have 
happily followed along, knowing myself, I probably would have had a discussion with God. God, do you think it's wise for us to do circumcision before we do the battle? How about we conquer the land? Then we can do that once all of our enemies are gone. You know, you're kind of putting us in a bad spot. Israel doesn't do that because their faith in God is strong. And so when God says, this is what I want, this is what I want you to do, not to earn goodwill, but as representative of your obedience to me, your faith in me, and ultimately your trust in me. This is what I desire. This is what I want from you. And they say, okay. Then we get to the end of the passage in Joshua 13 through 5, 13 through 15. And here we see this mysterious stranger show up. I think the last thing that we're going to see here is that true believers are marked by who they follow. True believers are going to be marked or identified by who they follow after. Joshua 5, 13 says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh, and now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. All right. Let me clear out any sort of misunderstanding. This mysterious stranger is not so mysterious, and he's truly not a stranger. This is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This is not just an angel. This is not just some angel sent by God to go lead the armies. Rather, this is Christ with all the divinity of Yahweh, here to lead Israel into battle. I can say that confidently because Joshua falls down and starts to worship the stranger. Any other time we see somebody worshiping an angel, what's the response? What are you doing? Get up. Don't worship me. Angels are not worthy of worship. Angels don't bring holiness because of their personhood. Yahweh, God, brings holiness and perfection by his very presence. He's the only one worthy of worship. So Joshua sees this stranger, and he goes to him, and he asks him the question, are you for us or are you against us? You know, how am I supposed to deal with you? And the answer is fascinating. Jesus answers Joshua and he says, no, I'm not with you and I'm not with your adversaries. And we go, wait a minute, you know, we've all seen the, 
the thing about the footprints, you know, and Jesus is with me and carrying me. Understand, you don't go through life, living your life, doing what you do, and Jesus tags along with you, following where you go. That is not how this operates. And he clears it up immediately. Are you with us? Are you with our adversaries? No, I'm not with you, Joshua, and I'm not with your adversaries. I command the armies of Yahweh. Who commands the armies of Yahweh? Yahweh commands the armies of Yahweh. That's the only one who commands the armies of Yahweh. And here he is in the form of Christ. And he says, no, because the reality is he is not there with Israel to support Israel, to encourage Israel, to help Israel in their fight. It's exactly the opposite. You see, he is there to conquer the Holy Land, and he's going to bring Israel along with him. You see, Joshua, I'm not with you. You are with me. You are following after me. You see, true believers understand that they follow God. They're not here to uh, to be served by him. But often, I think that that is how we deal with God. We treat him as a spiritual slot machine, in a sense. We, we offer up our prayers. God, here's my plan. Here's what I want in my life. We send off our prayer, and we hope that he does what we want him to do. And often we get upset if he doesn't follow through on the plans that we've laid out for him. As if we know what's best for ourselves. I mean, just imagine for a minute, if you will, a foolish situation. Imagine Caleb and Joshua sitting down to plan some sort of strategy as they're getting ready to go into the Holy Land. And Caleb looks over and Joshua's got on a little wristband that he keeps playing with. What's with your wristband? He says, oh, this is my what would Moses do bracelet. You know, so whenever I run into an issue, I just think, what, what would Moses do? What would he? Joshua was not following Moses. Joshua was following Yahweh. Israel was not following Joshua. Israel was following Yahweh. The only authority that Joshua has is authority that was vested in him by Yahweh to bring his word to the people, to direct his people, to encourage his people, to teach his people. And right away, he makes sure that Joshua understands that. I'm not here for you. I'm here to do the work that I have planned. And you're going to come with me, Joshua. As Christians, we often forget that. And I don't know that we do it purposefully at times. I think we can get wrapped up in the busyness of this world, in the urgency that this world often presents. 
And often we go looking to someone else or something else to find our comfort, to find our strength. We look to the faith in the United States. And we think about the United States can't fall. What would that mean to the church? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. The United States ending tomorrow would not derail God's plans in the least. Sometimes we place our faith in a political party, whether that's the Republicans, Democrats, it does not matter. And we look to them, oh, if we could only get this person elected, then things will be good. Instead of whoever gets elected, it's going to be good because it's not outside the control of the God that I worship. Nobody snuck into office. No country birthed itself without him approving it. Sometimes we place our faith in our pastors. At one of my past churches, we had to go through the painful process of disciplining our our preaching pastor. And the follow-up questions that came from people were, well, what about my faith? Uh, He led me to Christianity. He baptized me. Everything I know, uh, I've learned from him. Do I need to get re-baptized? Do I need to rededicate my life? I'd explain to them, no. No. Because you don't follow that pastor. I mean, what are you? And despite your pastor's name, Christians, it's not referencing him. (laughs) Rather, we're followers of Christ. So our political leaders can fail, our countries can fail, even our religious leaders can fail. That doesn't change anything in the plan of God. You weren't baptized into some pastor's name. You were baptized in Christ. You follow Christ. And so then, what does that following look like? When you're following him, you have a belief in him, and not a belief that's superficial, not a belief like Israel, we believe in God, we believe in Yahweh, go conquer this land. No, I don't think we can do it. They didn't believe. But rather, a belief that says, I'm going to trust him, no matter what happens in my life. I am going to have faith that he knows what he's doing, that he's made promises to me, that he's going to follow through on those promises. And then, because we have a transformed heart, and our heart has been turned from stone to flesh, then our selfish desires start to wane, start to go away, and are replaced by a desire to do what he's instructed. And so then we do good works. And then, ultimately, we do exactly like Joshua did. And we fall down, and we worship the God that has made promises to us, fulfilled those promises, and brought us salvation. See, true believers worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible, who sent his son Christ, 
Not some other God. Not some impotent God. Not some God that has abandoned us that we don't know how he'll respond. Israel, unfortunately, doesn't hold on to this lesson for long. They conquer the promised land, they establish themselves, and they start living. And you imagine, if you were in that situation, you would say, this is incredible, you know? I mean, we've got Yahweh here with us. He's conquered the land. He's fulfilled his promises to us. But then you turn the page and the book of Judges comes. And the book of Judges is just ugly. And you get to the end, and Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we see Israel has again turned away from God and started to pursue their own desires. Yeah, they have a superficial belief. They call themselves Israelites. They probably still doing circumcisions and doing their offerings, but not out of a belief in God. You see, they exchanged worship of Yahweh for worship of themselves. They exchanged the commands of Yahweh for the commands of this world. They exchanged following after the will of Yahweh for the pursuit of their own base desires. And that is the warning that Joshua 5 is for us. Remember who you believe in. Remember why you're doing good works. And remember who you're worshiping. It's not some God that doesn't care, but rather it is a God that has been proving himself to man throughout history, that has continually shown patience and mercy and grace and ultimately sends his son to be a sacrifice for us to then adopt us into his family so that someday we can stand in front of him and say, I'm one of your children. I'm one of your children because I believe in you. And I've chased after your will. And I've worshipped you. Let me go ahead and close in prayer.